welcome to another Climate Tech Podcast, interviews with the people trying to save us from ourselves. I had lots of fun with this conversation with Nathan Palmier, a self-professed fungi nerd. Fungi is awesome and terrifying at the same time. It has the potential to solve our climate, biodiversity, and food crises. But as anyone who's seen the series The Last of Us knows, its potency can also be deadly. Everything you wanted to know about fungi and more. I reached Nathan in New York City. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ryan. Thanks a lot for having me. So your day job is leading commercialization at BioBrew, which is a precision fermentation startup launched by one of the largest beer companies in the world, AB InBev. And I guess they know a thing or two about fermentation. But I don't want to talk about that because I actually want to talk to you about your passion for fungi. When did you first realize that you're a fungi guy? <laughs> thanks thanks for that ryan um so yeah i mean my passion for fungi i think it comes back from you know high school college i got interested very early on in how biology can solve environmental problems and you know i think from there you know took a lot of classes i'm a big reader and got very interested in kind of different you know kingdoms and ecology and I remember learning that you know, fungi are much closer related to animals than they are to plants. That's so wild. That's such a weird thing to find out. (laughs) I know. We can talk more about why that's interesting later. And I think from there, got very interested in, you know, a bunch of different fields at the same time. So, you know, regenerative agriculture and biomaterials and biomimicry and kind of realized that through all of these, there was a weaving thread um, of fungi. And I think, and then you can say that like through food and through books and through reading, kind of got like the mushroom bug from there and have been digging deeper. There's so much to cover here on this topic, right? I mean, we could have multiple podcasts about this and I will have some more podcasts about this, but you do cover kind of the whole gamut of why this stuff is so fascinating. And I feel like I need to kind of create a little table of contents for this conversation. Otherwise, we're just going to be all over the place because mushrooms can solve like multiple types of problems Climate change, food insecurity, biodiversity loss, those are kind of a few of them. Why don't we start, you know, and then we'll get to things like physical and mental health as well later. But why don't we start with climate change, where you kind of further could break it down into waste mitigation, carbon sequestration, and materials design. Can you talk about sort of this package of three, this subset of three things and some of the things you found in your research and reading? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Yeah, let's break this down. So yeah, so I really think that fungi are going to be an unavoidable part of climate policy. And I think for three of the reasons that you just mentioned, right, for waste mitigation, for carbon sequestration, and for materials design. So starting with waste mitigation, I mean, we have a lot of different pollution problems. We have chemical pollution, we have air pollution, we have water pollution, we have oil spills, the list goes on. But if you look back at, you know, how fungi have operated on Earth for over a billion years now, they really are the recyclers of the planet. And their one expertise is how do I break down different compounds to use as food or to provide food to other organisms? And so I think like tons of potential here with, you know, how they can use the hydrocarbons in diesel or in oil spills, clean those up and then, you know, create whole oases of life. There's also this whole field which people are getting very interested about now called microremediation. And, you know, when you look at some of the problems from agricultural runoff, 
there's a lot of excess nutrients. So nitrogen, phosphorus, they're getting, you know, washed to the seas and are causing these algal blooms that basically suffocate everything else in those ecosystems. And, you know, fungi can actually help sequester, capture some of those nutrients before they reach the oceans and stop those dead zones. So I think so many different possibilities on waste mitigation. Um, and we can talk plastic about all these things maybe later on as well. And maybe just like center us a little bit on this as well, because there's fungi, there's mycelium, there's like fungi is basically, you know, the mushroom that we see, but mycelium is like this network, like the earth's fiber optic lines kind of running underneath. Can you just kind of talk a bit about, you know, the range of what's out there and like, what are we talking about? What's the full gamut of fungi? Yeah, totally. So that's a great question. So fungi is going to be the broadest term. So fungi is basically, you know, this whole kingdom in the same way that you talk about animals, that we talk as plants, you also have fungi. And within that, you have tons of different of organisms. You have things like unicellular fungi. So yeasts that you have in beer or bread, those are fungi. Then you have, you know, different mycelium and what we call filamentous fungi. So these are things like molds, you know, other organisms that are found in fermented foods. These, you know, usually are like kind of one cell, one cell thick and can multiply. And then you have mycelium, which we call kind of the root of mushrooms. And about maybe 10 to 20,000 of mushroom species actually produce what we call fruiting bodies. And so fruiting bodies are what we call as mushrooms. So if you kind of have the analogy of an apple tree, like the roots are the mycelium and then the apples is what we call mushrooms. No way. Okay. And so the whole time we're talking about flora and fauna, and it should be flora, fauna, and fungi, basically. Yes. Funga. I think people have been calling it, uh -huh. which I'm going to start using too. <laughs> okay. So thanks for clarifying that. And I've just learned something there as well. So, okay. You talked about waste remediation already. I wondered also, you know, we know that it's super good at carbon sequestration. Why don't we, or does this happen? I mean, we're there are huge efforts to plant trees, right? And that like huge part of the kind of carbon offset movement is about planting trees. Can you plant fungi? Is this a thing? Are people doing this? Is this part of like a, a CO2 sequestration plan? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, are fungi part of a CO2 sequestration plan? I think absolutely. I think just taking a step back, we look at how carbon on earth is kind of divided. You have 80% of carbon in like terrestrial soils, is below ground. Maybe 20% is above ground in things like trees, but most of it is stored below ground. And, you know, how is that stored below ground? And there's a really cool study that came out earlier this year, basically showing that, you know, of all the CO2 that trees capture, about 30% of it, they send directly to fungi underground. So that's where a lot of it is stored. And then about 90% of plants, trees have these relationships with fungi where they basically trade, you know, carbon from the atmosphere for micronutrients that fungi can source from underneath. And I think we ignore a lot of those relationships, whether it's in agriculture or whether it's in planting trees. And yeah, I think we're missing out on something big here because when we look at trees, which, you know, I think are a super cool way of, you know, reforesting very important environmental initiatives, we're really forgetting like that symbiotic relationship there. And as a consequence, like when we look at how well the trees that we plant survive, it's not that great, Ryan. It's like they like you have around 56% of trees that survive longer than five years. 
So if you want trees to be like a big part of our you know, climate and biodiversity strategy, like that's not going to work. And I think like planting trees, you know, with the fungi that they can grow with and a lot of startups doing this, I think is a more promising route. I seem to recall that trees basically use fungi as a communication route, right? Can you talk a little bit about what that's all about? Yeah, totally. So I thought this was such an interesting concept. So when you go to forests, there's a lot of elder trees. Some people call them mother trees. And basically it was found that a lot of these trees can actually connect underground through mycelial networks. Uh, so they are, as you mentioned, the kind of fiber optics of nature. And I think it's the coolest thing that mother trees can actually, you know, recognize their own seedlings and not just communicate with them, but also share nutrients to them through mycelium. Wow. And so they really are kind of like the wood wide web is what some people call them. Yeah, I just think that's like there's a whole universe of things underground. There's like 300 square miles of, you know, mycelium just under your under each of our feet. And they can sense that we're there. Like they rise up in our footsteps after we walk. It's, I don't know what else to say than like a forest kind of grows aware. I think I learned about this watching a Netflix documentary or something. And I just remember stopping and being like, what? <laughs> like, this is, I mean, it was mind boggling. And, uh, you know, I never thought of trees as like actually communicating with each other. And, but yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. Was this a fantastic fungi? That could be, that sounds about right. Yeah. It's a great one for those listening that uh, haven't watched it yet. I'll link to it in the show notes then as well. So, okay. The other kind of area on the climate change mitigation side is materials, right? And I've seen this quite a bit as an investor, some things like mushroom-based leathers. Ikea is now replacing styrofoam with fungi foam. So there's like different types of packaging, takeout packaging and that type of thing. What's the state of play with materials? Yeah, absolutely. So I think first, when we just look at the state of materials today, I think we desperately need innovation. When you look at kind of production globally, there's a ton of single-use materials, single-use plastics that, you know, will outlive all of us in these ecosystems. And so we really need better solutions that, you know, are more benign and are more circular to begin with. And I think that starts with fungi. And I think what's cool about fungi is that, you know, they initially can inoculate different forms and we can use them to make different materials. So as you mentioned, we can make, you know, mycelium leather, we can make, you know, insulation panels, any kind of foam that you think of, whether it's, you know, like packaging foam, insulation foam, you know, other forms can be made with fungi and, you know, furniture kind of like sky's the limit. And I think there's really going to be you know, a new generation of kind of fungi based materials very soon. This is such a bad table of contents because, I mean, I say climate change, food insecurity and biodiversity loss, but as if they're not like, you know, all interconnected. So because now I want to talk about food insecurity. And the first thing I think about, right, is, you know, it's of course, it's food insecurity, but it's also the fungi based food is a massive contributor to kind of a carbon neutral or net zero future. But talk about this. So I saw on your LinkedIn a while ago that you wrote that the juiciest steak you might ever eat might not come from cows or plants, but from mushrooms. And then you had this like super delicious looking steak. And you were saying how it's also protecting you from dementia at the same time. 
maybe talk first about that steak and like, you know, talk about how you prepare your mushrooms for, you can give some recipes here, but then also kind of how this ties into food insecurity. Yes, absolutely. All right. So yes, I also think that fungi are going to be a big part of, I think more human friendly and, or I would say human healthy and earth friendly foods. And I think can make a big dent in food insecurity. I'll just take a step back and kind of like ask, you know, when we think of like spinach and peas, like, have you ever heard someone call those, you know, meaty? Um, not so much. And I think that is something that a lot of vegans will say about mushrooms is that like, you know, wow, like you put this on the barbecue and it's so meaty. And I think that's why it's like going to be a very exciting just replacement for meat analogs is because like, you know, it can grill more similar to different meats. And I love lion's mane mushrooms. They're great in coffee, but they're also great to make as whole steaks. And so I write like a weekly newsletter. And that was one of the the recipes that I shared on like a lion's mane steak. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I also like eating like higher quality and less meat. That's something that I'm definitely focusing on at the moment. But I kind of had this thought of like, you know, why don't I try to cook this mushroom the same way I would cook a steak? And so, you know, high heat, a little bit of oil, some seasoning, and just like pressing it down and kind of turning it over a few times until it gets like, you know, that recognizable sizzle and char. And it's really delicious. Are lion's mane steaks or lion's mane mushrooms easy to find? I don't I don't think I've ever seen one in a supermarket before. Yes. So actually there are, um, you can find them in some Whole Foods and some, I think, other supermarkets on the West Coast that I've seen. They're actually not that difficult to find, along with, I guess, maitake, shiitake. I usually see those around the same rates. You can also grow them at home in different kits. But a few other fun facts that I think are fascinating about lion's mane is that, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, they could actually help prevent dementia. They contain two very interesting classes of compounds called heresinones and aranacines, which are basically shown to do two things. One, they can like regenerate the myelin sheath on neurons. So these are like kind of like the fat that surrounds neurons that isolates them and allows those electrical currents to go fast. So that can regenerate those myelin sheaths. And it's when, you know, that sheath gets broken that then neurons start sticking together. And then this is when you get these things called amyloid plaques, which contribute to most of the symptoms that we see in Alzheimer's. So that mushroom is helping to reverse that. And at the same time, it promotes this thing called NGF, nerve growth factor, to basically, you know, help create new neural pathways in our brains. So like super, super interesting thing on how mushrooms like heal our brains as well. And is that all mushrooms or that's especially in lion's mane? That's especially in lion's mane, though some other mushrooms have other benefits for immunity, health, and so forth. Okay, next up is biodiversity, and I'm especially interested in the role that fungi plays in inoculating bees against disease and maintaining old-growth forests. I think you touched on that already from the communication side. Talk about bees and inoculating bees. From what? Yeah, for sure. So we have a big problem right now with bees, and it's especially this phenomenon called bee colony collapse disorder, where basically you have entire beehives that are getting wiped out and sometimes like from one year to the next, like, you know, some pollinators might lose 30% of their hives. And that's, you know, catastrophic. I mean, obviously for the crops that need those, but also for the natural ecosystems that really rely on pollinators for their reproductive cycles. And bee colony collapse disorder 
is caused by a combination of a few things. So you basically have these little mites. They're these little parasites that themselves carry these different viruses. And basically, like if you're a mushroom and you're living for a long time in the forest, you eventually will have to fend off different viruses, different parasites, because you can't move. You're kind of just there. And so a lot of these mushrooms have figured out how to fight off kind of similar viruses and parasites. And so they produce some super interesting antiviral compounds that, you know, bees will actually seek out in nature. And some people have observed kind of bees nibbling on, you know, exposed mycelium. And what I find fascinating is that you can then take some of these antiviral extracts from mushrooms and put it in things like, you know, things like bird feeders, I guess, bee feeders. And you could have this in backyards, basically like some natural kind of vaccine-ish, you know, solutions to help prevent, you know, this really dramatic bee colony collapse disorder. I work with a lot of companies who plan to open up shop in or expand across Europe. My one big piece of advice, don't fall into the trap of setting up a new entity right away. Instead, talk to my friends at Paracar, who can help you get up and running without all the costs, not to mention the legal and HR hassle. When I was hiring in different EU countries, I wanted my team to focus on their work, not on the country's bureaucracy. After interviewing a half dozen international expansion firms, I chose Paracar because they were by far the most knowledgeable and they're great people. Whether you're a large multinational looking to expand abroad, a small business looking for the right talent, or a contractor, they'll sort it out. Book a free, no-obligation consultation right now at paracar.eu slash climate. That's P-A-R-A-K-A-R dot E-U slash climate. The most famous fungi-based health application, and for good reason, is penicillin. Can you talk a little bit about this discovery and what we've learned since then and how we're applying fungi to human health? Absolutely. Yes. So penicillin, I mean, it's probably one of the most important antimicrobials that was discovered in the 20th century. Definitely something that likely gave the allies, you know, an edge, you know, over, you know, Germans and some of the other folks in World War II, because they were able to have much higher survival rates, you know, from injuries during the war than the others. And the kind of story of how penicillin was discovered, you know, so it goes, is that so Alexander Fleming was coming home from vacation to, you know, a very messy lab bench. And he had all these, you know, bacteria cultivations, but then he saw that they had been contaminated with this kind of greenish mold, not quite sure what it was. But surprisingly, like that mold was actually preventing his bacteria from growing. And there's like, okay, something interesting is happening here. And kind of upon like further study investigation, found that that mold was producing different compounds that was, you know, kind of antimicrobial properties. And that turned out to be penicillin. And since then, we've, you know, kind of looked to fungi for other compounds they may be producing. And these are compounds that can fend off not just different other microbes, but also entire diseases, things like hepatitis or E. coli or, you know, other bacteria that cause strep, etc. So I really believe fungi to be, you know, nature's kind of pharmacy. 
they've figured out over time, like building this huge repertoire of how we fight different viruses, different bacteria, different parasites. And I think we should really continue to tap into that. There is a lot of emerging work as well in the space of uh, mental health with fungi and especially with psilocybin magic mushrooms being used through, you know, guided therapy. It's, of course, been used for thousands of years by Native Americans, um, more recently by hippies and, and by tech bros with their microdosing. And as an aside, you know, I'm a really big believer in magic mushrooms I'm a pretty staunch atheist, but the times that I felt most connected to the world and to nature and kind of the most spiritual have been, you know, after taking magic mushrooms on a canoe trip and lying underneath a tree and staring up at the tree canopy and watching as insects and squirrels and leaves like interact as kind of one organism. And it's really centering and it really kind of, you know, people describe how it can inform kind of your worldview and your connection to nature for the rest of your life. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's happening, what developments are happening in the world of mental health with psilocybin. Yeah. So I think this is like, there's a lot of potential here for, you know, psilocybin and psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Happy to talk about it, but I'd actually be curious to hear more about, you know, your experience, you know, kind of on that. And, you know, what were some like conclusions or, you know, thought or behavior patterns that you were able to kind of reevaluate, you know, did it help you heal in some ways? You know, it's hard to say. I don't know exactly if it's helped me heal in any way, but it there was something very physical about just seeing, like just observing the interconnectedness of all, you know, seeing these like micro ecosystems at play. And you could look in the grass and watch ants moving along or something like and these things that just kind of are, you know, you wouldn't notice in your day-to-day life. You really, really see how all things are interacting with each other and without getting too mushy about it, but in this kind of harmonious way, right? And that everything has its purpose. Everything is designed to facilitate kind of, you know, that that leaf is shaped like that for a reason. And the way that a water drop comes off that leaf and lands on another, and you know, the way the bird is sitting on that branch, you feel really connected to the millions of years of evolution, I feel like, in that moment, right? Like you really see this kind of master architecture at play and how the flora, fauna, and fungi, I guess, <laughs> all interact together. So that that was kind of my experience with it. And 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 all, always in nature, always on canoe trips and this type of thing where you're in the middle of nowhere. I don't think it would be as fun or as insightful if I was sitting on the subway at rush hour. <laughs> for sure. That sounds like, uh, yeah, that would not sound pleasant uh, <laughs> in the subway for sure. But I love what you're mentioning about, you know, kind of really tapping into the interconnectedness of all things. And I think that's just one thing that's very powerful about these kinds of substances. And I think there's so much potential to help a lot of people that are facing you know, terminal illnesses, you know, cancer related anxiety you know, addiction, depression, and just really inspired by, you know, some of the work coming out of, you know, Johns Hopkins. And most universities at this point have different trials with different psychedelics. But I think just seeing that after, you know, one experience, people are able to really overcome a lot of symptoms. And up to one year after that experience, like that two thirds of participants still feel like positive residual benefits. I think is amazing. And I think the way it works and the way it interacts with our brains is also very interesting. 
that um, kind of psilocybin helps silence what's called the false mode network. So basically, like when we grew up and when we formed our identities and thought patterns, our brain kind of used these like highways of different neurons. And this is what kind of shaped our ego, shaped our identity, you know, how we think and respond to things. And, you know, psilocybin helps us kind of step aside from that and now start to use all these different other pathways and how we can look at our problems differently, reflect on things differently. And I think that's why it has such a potential to heal people. Psilocybin. Have I been pronouncing it psilocybin this whole time? Um, Maybe, yes. I didn't want to correct you, but I, I think it's psilocybin. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, okay, we're just going to pretend right now that this is like a regional thing, you know, <laughs> it's a regional pronunciation. Totally. I'm, I'm sure in Europe they pronounce it differently. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, we'll go with that. That's the European. I'm just using the American pronunciation here. Yeah. Okay. It's like, you know, in Europe we throw use where they don't belong in words like color and yeah. So that's uh, perfect. Okay. For all of our listeners, that's just a, the central European pronunciation. And I'm going to stick with that. Two other things I want to talk about here, because it wouldn't be, you know, a podcast episode if we didn't talk about slime mold and cordyceps. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So first of all, slime mold. Why is it awesome, even though it sounds terrifying? It sounds disgusting, exactly as you mentioned it. But these are actually, you know, extremely smart organisms. So there's actually some, you know, kind of debates as to whether slime molds are part of the fungi kingdom. They were thought a long time to be part of it. I would still think there's very, very close relationships there, even though there's some evolutionary differences. But anyways. Sounds like a lively uh, cocktail party discussion. (laughs) Yes, so lively for all the mushroom nerds out there. And I think slime molds are especially fascinating because they're one single cell and they can spread in like these orange yellow webs to kind of capture food in all directions. And what's very interesting is that they're very efficient in how they connect different food sources. And there's some researchers in Tokyo, and it started in Tokyo and it's been done for many other cities, that basically look to say, okay, like we think our subway system is pretty efficient, but like, let's see how nature might, or slime molds might react to different food sources. We map them out like population hubs in Tokyo and how they connect together. And they actually saw that the slime molds you know, over time, it'll spread in all directions. It'll try to get all the oats, but then it'll kind of, you know, thin out the less efficient pathways and really reinforce the most direct connections between those hubs. And they ended up seeing that, you know, the slime molds had outperformed Tokyo's engineers in like developing like subway and highway systems. And I find this so interesting. And if you do the same for the US and Germany, which has been done, in the U.S., like you see a lot of similarities with how our highways are constructed. You know, you would see connections between, you know, Boston and New York on the I-95. But they've also like come up with all these clever solutions of linking up cities that we haven't thought of yet. So they're basically doing in a much more accelerated fashion. You know, what we've done over the past couple centuries of figuring out, OK, what's the most direct point to tie these three cities? And yeah, I think they're very interesting. Look out AI and watch out for slime molds. Yeah, exactly. They got some competition. The new hot funding topic in venture capital. So Cordyceps had its moment of fame this year in the spectacularly good TV series, The Last of Us. This is the fungi that zombified the majority of the world's population, kind of like coming out of their mouths and their eyes and stuff like that. 
but it's not as science fiction or as far out there as we might think because Cordyceps actually does do this, but in much smaller critters. What's the deal? Mm. So first to take a step back, I got to admit you something, Ryan. I totally mentioned The Last of Us in some posts. I've actually not watched it yet, but I know it talks about Cordyceps. It's really good. Okay. It's really good. I got to bring it up the list. But anyways, so Cordyceps. Cordyceps are part of this group of like parasitic fungi. And basically the way they reproduce, I think is just so interesting. I mean, similar to The Last of Us can infect, you know, things like ants or different insects and then kind of zombify them and trick them into climbing to the tallest possible point, then biting down on a leaf, and then they will sprout a mushroom from their heads and release their spores far and wide as possible. And this is actually something that we can use, you know, for different insect infestations that we don't necessarily want. So think about termites, like those are such a pain to get rid of. The current solutions are super toxic, but you can actually use this thing called delayed sporulation. So basically like the insects, they know about this cordyceps stuff and they won't be tricked easily. There's always guards at the front of a nest that will detect, you know, any ants or any insects coming in with the spores of cordyceps. And usually those guards will bring those ants, you know, far away from the nests and then they'll kind of all die together and get consumed by the cordyceps. But you can actually trick the ants and make those spores undetectable. And so... With the late sporulation, these you know, ants will walk into the next undetected. And then by the time cordyceps starts spreading, it's too late. Now it's taken over the whole nest and you can get rid of entire termite colonies and they'll leave spores behind. And so you can make your home termite proof for like a decade with a solution that would cost something like a quarter. So yeah, super interesting stuff here. I mean, shouldn't we be afraid of this? Can't you do this to people too? So actually, yes, that is something that we should definitely be concerned of. I've talked a lot about, you know, the many different benefits of a fungi, but fungi, you know, also do carry some fungal infections that can be difficult to treat. And I mean, actually, in the past few years, we've been seeing some instances of some very weird infections. First in India, some in Europe, more recently, like July of this year in the US, actually. And there are different fungal infections. If you look at, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, you know, why haven't fungi infected humans more often? And it's because of the temperature difference. Like the human temperature, body temperature is actually made to avoid fungal infections. And, you know, with climate change and with a lot of places getting warmer, you now have fungi that are getting used to these increased temperatures and are actually starting to infect some human hosts. Nothing to be, you know, crazy worried about right now, but there is, I think, one called like Candida auroris, this like one fungal infection that, you know, has been seeing some different instances. And per the conversation earlier on how, you know, humans are much closer to fungi than we are to plants. And that's also why we don't have that many really effective fungicides is because, you know, human and fungi you know, are more similar than, you know, us and other bacteria, for example. So the best it could do for hundreds of thousands of years was athlete's foot. And now we have to watch out for the zombie apocalypse is what I'm taking away from that. That is one interpretation, but nothing to get worried about. But uh, yeah, hopefully it stays to the athlete's foot stuff for now. 
you very intentionally, and if I may say so successfully, developed an online writing practice through your weekly newsletter, BRB with Nathan P. So this is where you put your recipes as well, right? And a climate tech breakthrough and a book recommendation. And I wonder, you know, if anyone out there is thinking of upping their online writing game, if you've got some tips for them. And also if you just want to give a plug for where people can find BRB with Nathan P. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks a lot for mentioning the newsletter. So yeah, so every week I write a food and climate newsletter called BRB with Nathan P. And always has three things. You can expect the same from me every Wednesday. So I will share, you know, one cool thing that I've been learning about in the food and climate tech world, one recipe that I've made in the past week, and then one book that I'm reading could be fiction, could be nonfiction, also related to food and climate. And yeah, I kind of started this journey, I think really wanting to develop a writing habit. And I think build a community of people that are interested in the food and climate space and bring people, investors, entrepreneurs, uh, just citizens, just people who are interested in making a difference through our food and climate choices. And for anyone thinking of, you know, writing and getting more out there, you know, I was scared of writing on the internet for a while, you know, always very you know, sensitive to, you know, what people think about what I'm writing and definitely helped overcome a lot of that and meet some incredible people like yourself. So very happy to be here. For those who want to write more, so a few tips. I think number one, and this can sound simple, but just get started. I think the first step is finding something that you're more obsessed about than the average person and that you really want to, I think, share more of and meet people in that space. I think now that we're on the internet, like no niche is too small. Like there will be people who are also interested in what you're interested in. So number one, just get started and find something to write about. Number two, I think, you know, writing on the internet, maybe similar to podcasts, curious to hear your thoughts on this, can be a lonely journey at times. And so I think number two, super important to find your tribe. And I think finding people who you know are writing about similar things are on a similar you know, step of the journey, or maybe even one or two steps ahead of you. And yeah, I think just like sharing tips, sharing resources, you know, with that tribe, you know, send the texts in the group chats, that kind of thing, you know, can be very powerful to, I think, one, help your reach, but also to like learn from people who've done this already. And number three, I think it's just a question of being consistent. You know, how do you generate trust with this audience and community that you're building? And also be patient. I mean, you know, a lot of people expect to write online and immediately get thousands of followers. But, you know, the volume really needed to, you know, be successful and be visible definitely takes some time. And it's, you know, a journey that I'm very much still on. But yeah, that's what I would say. And how do you feel about it as with this weekly cadence? Is that something you feel like you can maintain? Do you do you plan on doing this forever or this is kind of a let's see or how do you think about that as a weekly podcaster also curious <laughs> asking for a friend <laughs> yeah totally i think you know it really depends on the person you know what's sustainable for you and you know where do you find energy and what drains your energy for me this is something that like i'm already doing all of these things anyways like exactly i'm already reading a book i'm already having conversations with people on different topics i'm already cooking a bunch and you know might as well share that and enjoy the process of writing it. So for me, like I find that once a week is a very sustainable pace. You know, I could do this for a very long time. 
you know, no expectations on, you know, what the destination might look like. I think for now, just enjoying the process. But yeah, what about you? I'm also curious to hear how have you felt with this weekly cadence of the podcast? Totally the same thing. And I mean, it's been interesting. I thought that one of the harder things to do would be to kind of line up all the guests. But actually, that's filled up very quickly to the point that I'm usually many weeks ahead. So that also means you can kind of take a week off here and there. But yeah, I mean, as with you, it's something that I'm doing anyway, right? I'm having conversations with people like you day in and day out. And the whole kind of genesis of the podcast in the first place was, why don't I just hit record once in a while and share this with some other people as well? Because as a clean tech investor, as a clean tech consultant, advisor, you know, I get to have all these kinds of really interesting conversations that also kind of germinate some hope, you know, for what in a world that is, you know, has a bit of a dearth of it. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's been great. And it's actually been something that definitely gives me energy. So I would totally reiterate what you've just said about that. I love that. And yeah, you know, we met on LinkedIn, great place to meet people in your field. I'm also curious, like, how do you, you know, find guests for the podcast? Like, what's that process like? Well, it starts to snowball a little bit because I talk to my guests and say, you know, basically, who else should I talk to? Who else do you think would be mm-hmm. interesting? I was, whenever I see in my LinkedIn feed someone doing something interesting, a lot of times I'll send them a message and say, do you want to talk about this on the podcast? I think that's how we met, right? And yes. and then it's a great chance to, it's a, a really great way to meet and get to know someone and then share it more broadly. So I'm really happy about doing this. And, and yeah, I think, I don't know what the destination looks like either, but it's definitely a f- long way away. <laughs> Yeah, no, I I love that. I think just great to reach out there and like I think so many people are having convers like in super interesting conversations anyways, and like might as well share those conversations that might help or maybe inspire some people to get started. Hundred percent, especially if it's so. A lot of people who listen to the podcast are career switchers. Mm-hmm. So I've always been, you know, I worked in renewable energy in the mid two thousands, and I would always take a coffee with people who wanted to get out of like banking or consulting and get into renewable energy. And I think it's a really good way to kind of get people to see that you know there's like real people behind this and working in this field, and to get kind of a sense of how you know, how they can transpose their experience into the sector as well. Yes. For all the consultants, finance people out there, climate tech is happening. Food tech is happening. Come join us. There's a lot of exciting things happening. <laughs> I also wanted to ask about a little bit about your, you know, you mentioned you're a clean tech investor. You know, what are some theses that you're currently excited about in that front? And, you know, is fungi maybe part of that? Fungi is a big part of it, actually, because I'm almost exclusively an alternative proteins investor. And what I like about alternative proteins is people assume that I'm like some big foodie, which I'm not at all. I'm really not. But I love animals. And so finding ways to remove animals from the supply chain was interesting to me. Food tech is, you know, it's not as sexy a sector as like, you know, people don't get excited about it the way they get excited about Teslas or, you know, things like that. So that means it's kind of a bit of an underserved sector from the investment side. So, you know, food, let's say food represents 30% of greenhouse gas emissions, but gets like, you know, 6 to 12% of, of VC attention from climate tech VCs. So you can see that there's kind of an opportunity there. It's a new market. It's, you know, I was an internet guy in the late 90s. And in 2000, people said, okay, well, that's it. Internet was a fad. And, you know, and we're seeing (laughs) 
we're seeing the same thing happen to some extent right now mm-hmm. in the alternative protein sector. We're like, okay, Beyond Burger stock has crashed and therefore plant-based is over. And it's like, you know, so I see a lot of similarities. I like new markets. I like markets where people say not going to happen. And then to, you know, be on the ground floor of proving them wrong, because obviously the food system has to change, right? It just has to. For sure. Yeah. I love that, you know, there's clean tech investors like you that, you know, are getting startups the support they need. And yeah, why debate people online when you can debate them in the marketplace? (laughs) Yeah, it's putting your money where your mouth is and then still eating the product of the investment or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, no, I love that. No, very excited for, I think, more plant-based innovations and I think more like fungi forward innovations as well. You know, I think there's been either plant-based or either kind of mycelial products, hopefully like combinations of both. Uh, very soon. It's going to be hybrid products. So I'm invested in 27 companies and they range from plant-based to fermentation to cultivated. And people are always talking about like, well, which one's going to win? It's going to, there's going to be hybrid products, right? It's uh, it's not a silver bullet, it's silver buckshot. <laughs> mm. No, I, I mean, totally agree. I think, and we've also seen, I mean, I think speaking of hybrid products that, you know, a lot of people are still, I think, reluctant to give up meat. And, you know, we've seen that, you know, these are things that are very, very nostalgic, I think very sensitive, very cultural for many people. Indeed, yeah. And I think, you know, the reality of wanting everyone to be vegans is unfortunately not not there yet and can't quite impose that on people. But I think, you know, offering like alternatives, like hybrid alternatives that, you know, might have the same tastes, might have the same texture, might even be healthier you know, as blends of like meats and mushroom or meat and other products, or like just mushroom and plant products, I think are extremely exciting. It has to taste better and be cheaper. And then there's questions about accessibility and nutrition, but it's just, you know, those are the two things. And I think we'll get there. I mean, if you consider the inefficiency of animal agriculture versus the efficiency of, you know, things like plant-based or cultivating meat, where you're using a fraction of the land and the resources. So, you know, there's still going to be real meat, but it just doesn't have to, you know, grow over six weeks or something, eating soybeans to get there. I think that's kind of the future that we'll see. For sure. I love that. Nathan, thanks so much for joining. And, and thanks for asking me some questions. It's nice to be asked some questions too and be on the other side of the table. <laughs> no, of course. I mean, like, love this conversation and um, no, love the work that you're doing, you know, supporting a lot of the startups in this space. And yeah, if you want to hear more from me every Wednesday, you can find me on Substack. So Nathan Pommier, BRB with Nathan P. You'll get an email from me with some delicious recipes and some climate tips every Wednesday. Sign up before the cordyceps turn us all into zombies. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> all right. Thanks so much for having me, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to another Climate Tech Podcast. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe, rate, and share this podcast. Get in touch anytime with tips and guest recommendations at hello at climatetechpod.com. Find me, Ryan Grant Little, on LinkedIn. I'll be back with another episode next week. Bye for now. This episode is supported by Grizzle, B2B content to create and capture demand. I first met Grizzle's founder, Tom Watley, five years ago at a conference in Dublin. I was so impressed that I signed a deal with him to do all my software company's content that same evening at the pub. Remember that, Tom? 
Um, kinda. And they're still doing it two years after we sold the company because the new owners love Grizzle as much as I do. If you sell B2B, book 30 minutes in Tom's calendar at grizzle.io slash climate. That's G-R-I-Z-Z-L-E dot I-O slash climate.